Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 169, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And welcome to the show. Now, I'm actually quite curious as to where people will be listening to the podcast this week, because, you know, here in the UK at least, this is kind of the, the biggest weekend of the year four-day Easter bank holiday weekend. Well, it's starting to get sunny and, you know, some people will be outside, but some will be inside playing computer games as well. Or some will be doing both, like uh, Ravi will have his, his shorts on, I'm sure, with his Game Boy in the park in the <laughs> yeah. sunshine. Um, and listen, we've got to say a big welcome if you are new to the podcast this week as well. Um, I did spot on Twitter some really lovely tweets coming through of people going, I've just discovered your podcast this week because we were actually featured in, and uh, this was a little surprise to me, actually, because I knew it was coming, didn't know it was going to be this month, turning to page 12, I think it was, of the current issue of Retro Gamer and seeing our ugly dweeby mugs. Yeah. Staring back. It's awesome. So if you don't know about this show, we kind of cover the news in the first half yep. and then we get a guest on the show and we've we've got over 168 shows that you can listen to, yeah. which is just crazy. And the guests that we have this week, oh my God, I've loved his channel since since it kind of started, really. Well, that's the thing about this show. I mean, you're right, we do cover so much when we have developers on. We've had, like, CEOs of companies. You know, Tom Kalinske from Sega, for example, was on. Um, we've had people that made video games. But we do love having YouTubers on. Now, we've had you know, some of our favourites. LGR's been on this show, 8-Bit Guy, Retro Man Cave. And this week... It's a channel that we're both huge fans of. And this guy's got a really interesting history. He actually worked at a company that we, we covered recently on the podcast, actually, Sierra. And this is Metal Jesus Rocks. Yeah, so you may know Metal Jesus Rocks because he also has a kind of crew of other YouTubers yep. as well. So there's Reggie, there's Kenzie, there's Kelsey, there's quite a few of them. And he's also found the N64DD USA version, which was a, a kind of disk drive for the N64. Yeah, this went viral, his video. Probably about, was it about two years ago that video came out now? And I know a lot of people probably discovered his channel then when he found this really ultra-rare Nintendo 64 prototype. Now, the American version never got released, so we've obviously got to talk about that. We're going to talk about his time at Sierra as well and what it was like, you know, because he worked in so many different departments there. He started as an accountant, which, looking at him, you know, he's a proper... Very metal accountant, yeah. yeah. (laughs) He wouldn't really see the role of an accountant, you wouldn't think. But, you know, there's some great stories about his time there. Game collecting as well. I mean, there's videos he does about, you know, ensuring his game collections. He's got some really rare stuff. Yeah, and he was even in a game himself, an FMV game. So we're going to talk about that. Yeah, so we're really pleased to have him on. Jason from Metal Jesus Rocks is going to be our guest on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, also every week, we keep you up to date on the stories that have been happening in the world of retro gaming. Uh, we mentioned the Game Boy before, because I know you've actually been doing a bit of Game Boy modding that we'll talk about in a minute. But the Game Boy celebrated a big anniversary. It turned 30 this month. So we'll talk about that soon. And also, this mysterious Sonic the Hedgehog statue that's been discovered in the woods in Japan. That We've got a bit of an update on that story. Now, before we get into it, let's give a huge thank you to our loyal supporters. As, uh, you know, like we said at the start, this podcast does come out every Friday. And we've done this, like, we're into our fourth year of doing this show now. So we couldn't do this without your support. And if you'd like to make a little donation into the running of the show, that is massively appreciated. It helps us, you know, keep it going, pay for all our costs, our studio time, editing, website hosting, all that kind of thing and you will find your place in a future episode of the show on the Retro Hour Hall of Fame just like this week Ian Pointer Paul Woodling Steve Netting and Darren Coles who all made donations into the running of the show and if you're going to do the same we accept it via PayPal any amount 
it all goes back into the running of the podcast and you'll find that link on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, while we're talking about amazing people who support the Retro Hour, let's give a big thank you to this episode's sponsor and have been you know, helping out the Retro Hour all throughout April, and that is our amazing friends at Retrosoft Studios. Now, the podcast this month is brought to you by their brilliant new wrestling game. It's actually a retro wrestling game, as you'd expect from this show, called Retromania Wrestling. Now, the thing about their company is they do new games that are inspired by classics. So we all remember WrestleFest. That incredible arcade game back in the day. And you probably said, I remember playing WWF WrestleFest. And then all those, you know, great characters in there from WWF, like Hulk Hogan and Jake the Snake and Million Dollar Man back in the day. Yeah, and uh, they've also kind of got, like, on this new version, still keeping to the original style of, like, 2D sprites and, you know, those beautiful backgrounds that they have, but they're adding in new cool stuff. So they've got, like... um, local multiplayer but you can have eight players on that which is quite good so you get all your mates around have a good wrestle oh well you'd have dreamed of that when you were a kid i mean two players at the arcade seem cool enough but their new game so retromania wrestling it is a spiritual successor to the 1991 classic wrestle fest and what's cool about this company is mike herman who's the team lead on this you know i've had several conversations with Mike, lovely guy but it was always his dream to make a sequel to the game that he loved so much as a kid and now he's actually doing it. And there's so many, you know, characters we've announced a few over the last few weeks. Hawk and Animal of the Road Warriors, Tommy Dreamer, Austin Idol, Zack Zaber Jr. is going to be in the game too. Now, they are working on it at the moment, but we would love you. I mean, if you're on your phone right now or you're on your PC, open a new tab on your browser. Tap this in right now, RetromaniaWrestling.com. Just do that on your web browser. Have a little look at it. You'll be helping out the podcast. Check out the development of this game and how good it looks. And you can follow them on Twitter as well at Retrosoft Studio. I'll also put all that information in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into our chat with Metal Jesus Rocks, let's talk about the Game Boy's anniversary then. Because what a legendary system. I mean, the Game Boy really did change the world, didn't it? Yeah, and it was, oh God, it was such a good system. I think at one time, kind of, the Russian government were getting money from Tetris and then using that for the Cold War. Um, It was a a very big impact, but you remember how big Tetris was when it initially came out. Yeah, and it was weird, because I remember my my friend Sean actually got a, um, a Game Boy, probably 1990, and he brought it around. And at the time, I mean, I had a Commodore. And I remember looking at it thinking, oh, it's not that impressive. You know, it's black and white graphics and the speaker doesn't sound all that great. But then we started playing Tetris and I'm like, okay, I'm hooked on this. I really want one of these now. I mean, that's the thing. It wasn't, it's a system that proved that power and specs weren't the most important thing. Yeah, and it's definitely a grown-up boy now because it's 30 years old. And I've been doing mods on it recently because a lot of you don't know that I do DJing um, with kind of old Amiga computers. Now, there's a whole Game Boy DJing scene, but also a modding scene with the original ones and some really cool stuff you can do there. I've done one called the Pro Sound Mod at the moment. What's that then? And it basically takes the sound directly off the board so that you don't have any kind of mm, a little hum in there. Well, the ground hum on yeah, the yeah, and you can really, <laughs> really blast it. But also you can do the um, screen mods on there as well. And there's these little kits on eBay. They're only about like 12, 15 quid. Okay. For a little screen mod uh, for the original Game Boy and then just take it apart, do a bit of soldering, and uh, it's quite good fun, actually. What, what are the new screens like, then? It's it's, it's weird, because on the new Game Boys, you can just put them in, but the old one, you have to literally, like, peel this foil off the back of it and then, <laughs> you know, do a, a proper bit of modding. But there's plenty of YouTube videos out there. But it's great to see people still kind of 30 years later 
getting their Game Boys up to the latest kind of LCD display and stuff. Because it's crazy. I mean, there was a really interesting handheld scene in the early 90s. I mean, we obviously had the Atari Lynx. I, you know, I'm a big fan of the Lynx. The Game Gear, I've got one of those too. But the Game Boy, I mean, I was looking at some stats on it before. The Game Boy sold... Well, let's actually do this the other way around. So the, the Game Gear sold 10 million units. Which, you know, sounds all right for the time. The Game Boy sold 118 million. So it was the clear winner of the handheld wars back in the early 90s. And I I, I love it as well. I mean, it's a system that it kind of paved the way for everything that came after it. I mean, you look at the Nintendo Switch today, it's really just a super-powered Game Boy, isn't it? And the kind of backwards compatibility that they kept with was really good. So, you know, you could go all the way to the Game Boy Advance and still play original titles in it, which was... Really smart. I love the fact that you, you're going to be doing DJing with Game Boys as well. Yeah, so there's <laughs> there's two pieces of software. One called Nano Loop, which is more kind of for people creating tunes. And then there's one which people have created tunes, but they're incredibly expensive, these cartridges, because they're, they're drag-and-drop USB ones, and there was only a certain amount of them made. Can you not get them on, like, EverDrives or something like that? You can, can you? but okay. you can't fit so many tunes on them. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a pitch control at the moment so I can change the <laughs> tempo. So <laughs> I could be playing Mario and go... <laughs> right, you're like a mad scientist with uh, audio and old machines. So, yeah, look forward to watching that on our uh, Facebook page in coming months, I'm sure. But happy birthday, Game Boy, 30 years later and still an incredible machine. Now, one thing that, you know, was really cool back in the, the early 90s and uh, something that's kind of, you know, been missing from games and consoles and you still get them in arcades but you know it's not that common that you get them in the home anymore and that is light gun games yeah i've missed light gun games so much and you know they never really had a good modern solution for it so they had um the aim track i don't know if you've ever used that was that the thing with like the the wii kind of sensor it had a wii sensor bar at the top but it was a lot more accurate than the kind of wii um so you know the wii one it feels a bit uh, uh kind of wobbly doesn't it and it's not really fully tight and controlled like yeah. the other one this this felt a bit better but now there's a, a completely new piece of technology that's come out and it's just been a kickstarter um i think it was only released three days ago and they've already doubled their goal <laughs> on the kickstarter so there's a big demand for this and this is called the Sindon light gun the Sindon light gun now um, retro man cave actually did a video with uh, the guy who's behind this um, which I'll link up in our show notes because it is a really good watch, actually. And that maybe, you know, we should probably get him on the podcast at some point in the future as well because it looks really cool. But what it is, I mean, it's it's a new light gun for 2019 that lets you play, I mean, via emulation, you can play stuff like Duck Hunt, um, Wild Gunman, Mad Dog McCree, which, you know, I remember that in the arcade. Yeah, that was also yeah. love. Um, Virtua Cop, House of the Dead, Time Crisis, all these games. Because... I mean, for people who might not know, people might be listening and going, well, why can't you play those anymore at home? Because the way these old classic light guns worked, they tracked the beams on CRT TVs. So you need a big old school TV to use them. A a good high refresh rate as well. That was the thing that you needed. So it means now, you know, even via emulation and stuff, you can't use these old school light guns on modern TVs. But this, it uses completely new technology to allow you to do it. Yeah, so it's got this custom board in there, and then it's got this camera that basically detects any monitor, kind of rectangular monitor, yeah, and then finds the centre of it. And then there's a little computer in there that does calculations to work out the exact positioning. So there's no calibration, but also you can do it from multiple angles in the room. Uh, which is crazy, and he's talking about, you know, recoil. 
yeah. action on this. It's got a lovely little reload on it. And also, they have a two-player thing. But I think these are going to be pretty hard to get hold of until he can get some kind of mass production thing. Because judging by this demand... Yeah. They're already all sold out. <laughs> Watching that video, I think it surprised him, the demand for it. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it works with a modern PC, so it's a um, USB interface, or it works with the Raspberry Pi as well. Um, but he also said, you know, he, he couldn't really resist doing some new stuff with it too. I mean, he's um, also got experimental 3D tracking. Yeah, yeah, that sounded very interesting. So it was like when you moved with the gun, the picture may move at the same time or something like that. I, this could be a whole new interface, couldn't it? And, and I've watched the videos on it, and actually I didn't realise how much I would love to play like gun games again at home. You know, because I've got like, in my living room, I've got a 65-inch, you know, TV. It would be great to stand there with a gun and like, you know, playing these awesome old school games. Yeah. And, you know, via emulation, especially on a PC, you can you know, pretty much play anything. And he said there are games that, you know, that do work with it. You know, PC games that are, are out there that you can use it with. So I think it does kind of do some mouse kind of emulation so you can use it with games that are not built for it. But it looks really cool. So if you want to back this Kickstarter, uh, there are still a couple of weeks left on it. I'll put it in our show notes at theretrohour.com. And just imagine you're on holiday in Japan. You might be going out hiking for the day. Have a little ramble through the woods. And all of a sudden you turn around and there is a giant Sonic the Hedgehog statue from the early 90s, just randomly in the middle of nowhere. On a snowboard. <laughs> yeah, of all things. Now this exists and there have been videos and kind of pictures and stuff surfacing about this over, well, probably the last year or so I think it was discovered, wasn't it? Yeah, right? so it, it, if you look at a YouTuber called Bad Nick Mechanic, yeah. he's got the whole kind of mystery of the Sonic statue series on there. And this is crazy. So... Years ago, somebody found a, a random Sonic statue in the woods of Japan. Now, this is a huge statue, and he's doing a massive snowboarding kind of grab on there. And it looks like you know, Sonic from the early 90s, a design, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So people have put this up on a forum. Where is this? And they all couldn't find it. Then a guy had motorbiked through um, this area of Japan, and yeah. he said, oh, I saw it, but I can't remember where it was because I motorbiked. So all these guys on the so- Sonic forum sat there, um, using Google Maps, you know, Street View. Right. Going through this whole area of woods until one guy found the location of it, which is really interesting. He's kept that secret, so there's a pact between these guys. They're like protectors of the Sonic statue. So that anybody who goes out there, they can kind of say, oh, where's the Sonic statue? And these guys will go, oh, it's over here. So they sent another guy out to kind of seek permission. Now the Japanese media started to get interested in this and they've started to do some research recently where they went and they they obviously had an advantage being able to talk Japanese and talk to a lot more people and they found out that actually um the the guy who owned it it was from one of the old Sega worlds in Japan so it was the theme park yeah, yeah okay. he was the manager of it and they had this giant snowboarding sonic bursting out of the top he'd bought a house in the woods and no one could find the entrance to his house so yeah. he'd be like you know come to my house and oh, i can't find it so he goes all right i'll just put a big sonic in the woods <laughs> <laughs> and then just go left at the sonic <laughs> that's insane so he worked at the theme park took it home and just used it as like oh i'll put it out there that'll work that'll be unique yeah the yeah but it was it. one of these kind of like unsolved mysteries of the <laughs> of the sonic statue and now they're talking about possibly his family getting together and repainting it and kind of preserving it. Because 
even people of the area didn't know about this huge sonic statue. <laughs> and that's the thing. So, I mean, I imagine by the design of it and the fact that it was Sega World, it would have been probably, you know, mid-90s, I guess, you know, probably when yeah. it was uh, on display. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's been out in the elements for like 20-odd years. So it's, uh, yeah, it is looking a bit worn at the moment, isn't it? But it would be great if they restored it. Yeah, because, you know, Sega have been tweeting about it and stuff. So. <laughs> There is one at Alton Towers. Have you been on the Sonic ride there? And they've got like, it's more like early two thousand Sonic. A big statue of him stood there. Is it like Sonic Spinball or something like that? I, I think it's like I Sonic Adventure. Right? But yeah, the game is the yeah. game is still well. The, the ride's still there. Um, but yeah, every time I go there, I always have to get my picture taken with Sonic. <laughs> like yeah, maybe I might ask Alton Towers about and buy it off them. So. Probably couldn't afford it, but you know, there's have a that, dream there. Have that uh, to show where your house is. On yeah, show sh- me <laughs> the end of my road. Just ride me to turn right at the big Sonic and Nick from Montez. <laughs> so if you don't check out the pictures of it, honestly, it's really, really cool. I'll stick that in the show notes too. Now, before we uh, check to Metal Jesus, let's talk about something really random from Apple. Now, obviously, we're all on Apple today, you know, the iPhone and the iPad, um, some of the biggest handheld computers in the world. And even going back to the early 90s, I remember being, even though in hindsight it was problematic. I remember being wowed the first time I saw an Apple Newton. That was their PDA, wasn't it, back in the early 90s? Yeah, and that was all kind of during the Scully period, wasn't yeah. it? And a lot of things came from there as well. So, like, stuff like emojis that we have now and a lot of research that was held at that group uh, came to light. But also there was a lot of things that weren't very successful and the Newton was definitely one. Yeah, first thing Steve Jobs killed when he came back to Apple, I think, wasn't it? But there was also another system they were working on um, around the time the Newton came out in 1993 called the Walt. The Walt. Now, this was... um, (laughs) It looks really, really cool, actually, the design of it. It's a little bit wacky looking. It stands for Wizzy Active Lifestyle Telephone. So this was a touchscreen telephone in 1993 by Apple. Mm. Looks a bit bigger than your iPhone, doesn't it? <laughs> it's bigger than an iPad Pro by the looks of this thing. It's massive. But what it is, it's really a Mac that's been shrunk down into a tablet form from the early 90s. Now, it runs full-on Mac System 6 by the looks of it. Um, it's got a touchscreen on there that you can use with a stylus. It's got a fax machine built into it. It's got on-display caller ID. It's got a phone built in there as well, customizable ringtones, online banking access, and a built-in address book too. Now, there is a video that's just surfaced. Because, um, you know, people have talked about these for years. But there is now a video on YouTube where you can watch it being demoed. I just love the fact it's got a fax machine in there. That's so good. <laughs> really ties it to the era, that, doesn't yeah. it? Sitting there on the train faxing from it, yeah. <laughs> you look at it and it's very much of its time. It's got like a spinning hard disk in there. You turn this thing on, it takes two minutes to boot. You know, the kind of curves on it do remind me a bit of the Pippin. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's got that kind of design. And some, some of the Mac kind of monitors of the era looked a bit like that too. Um, and <laughs> they actually got like a... When this guy bought it, the prototype, there's like a, a manual with it with some really like uh, weird things in there. Apple kind of give it like a personality. Do not use Walt near water. Do not drop Walt like it's a person. You know, <laughs> but it, you, you remember that time, they're kind of giving computers and operating systems personalities. Yeah. Microsoft Bob, do you remember? Like, yes, you know, it was like yeah, very strange. User-friendly and everything as well. But so. it's, it's really interesting to see where, where all this stuff kind of came from because it is just a Mac shoved into a plastic case. It's... Yeah, <laughs> which everyone, you know, the iPad came out, everyone thought it was going to be that, didn't they? But yeah. as it turned out, you know, just shoving a computer into a tablet and giving you a stylus, 
it didn't actually work all that well, so they had to kind of build the operating system from the ground up. But it's a really interesting look back at Apple's development, you know, more than 25 years ago now. And, you know, this is really the father of the iPad and the iPhone and everything, isn't I've it? I've got a question. Would you do your online banking on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> if I could connect to my online banking, I'd be amazed from that. With a, I don't think I'll have SSL and everything on it, but if I could, I definitely would. Absolutely. Right, now, before we get into our chat with Metal Jesus, uh, just a quick reminder, do check out our friends at Retromania Wrestling from uh, Retrosoft Studios. Uh, I'll put a link in our show notes. You've got to check them out as well. It's this game that's been inspired by the old 1991 arcade game WrestleFest, and they are supporting the Retro Hour podcast this week. Like we are talking about before, pick up and play arcade wrestling action. Taking you back to the early 90s, gorgeous 2D graphics on there as well. It's even got stuff like ring entrances with entrance music. That I know you were like really impressed at when we saw these demos. Oh yeah, I love that. I I remember it. That's all I'd do in the nineties. I'd I'd make ring entrances and just sit there laughing at the worst, like you know, the really beefy guys with really gearly music. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, every you know there is entrance music in this as well. There's multiple entrance attires for each wrestler as well. So I mean, you know, they've really done a great job on this. The game's not released yet, but you can get a look at its development and support the Retro Hour podcast and keep an eye on the features. So as I said, open your browser, type in retromaniawrestling.com. Do that right now, or follow them on Twitter at retro soft studio right then let's get into our chat all about the history of sierra picking up on that episode that we did a couple of weeks ago with that some actually worked there during their peak and also his incredible youtube channel collecting games and lots more as well with this week's special guest jason from metal jesus rocks You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is our pleasure to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now, Ravi and I are huge fans of the YouTube channel Metal Jesus Rocks, and it's our pleasure to welcome to the show the man behind it. Hello, Jason. Hey, how's it going? Thank you very much for having me on your awesome podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Now, um, we're going to get into, obviously, I mean, you worked at Sierra, which um, we actually did a whole episode about Sierra recently, so it'll be great to talk to you and get some of your stories about um, your time at the company and also your amazing YouTube channel as well. But I mean, kind of going back to you know your earliest days what what kind of first got you into video games well i am i don't know if you know this about me but i am old and so i uh i'm old school and uh two things really the arcades back in the late or well probably early 80s is you know i mean i'm talking about the classics i'm talking about frogger and you know pac-man and i remember seeing a Space Invaders machine for the first time, you know, probably at a pizza joint, stuff like that. So that was really exciting. But uh, my parents bought me an Atari 2600. And I remember I had like combat, I think, and stuff like that, you know. So I, it was just magic, you know what I mean? It was just that time of, of my life where I was just young enough to where it just felt like magic. And uh, so that's where that all started. But I got to tell you, though, as, as passionate as I was about the Atari, it wasn't really until the Commodore 64 that I suddenly was like, this is this is everything that I want to do. This is everything that I love. And that was definitely the Commodore 64. So you were kind of more of a computer guy then. Yeah. I. You know, it's funny you say that because I turned into it, but I don't know if there was any real reason for that i guess you know it's funny because people talk about how there was in the united states a video game crash that happened in like i think 1984 and uh, i never felt it as a gamer and as a fan of video games because essentially what happened was i had an atari 2600 and i remember that the games were kind of getting crappy around that time and uh i had a friend of mine a neighbor who had a ti-99 i think is what it was is you know a, a computer 
And it wasn't a great computer, and but it introduced me to the world of computers. And in, um, I got introduced to the Commodore 64, and that's where I was like, oh, wow, these games can be awesome. You know, these it felt like a generational leap beyond the Atari and sort of the home consoles because things on floppy disk could have, I remember specifically like games had stories and, you know, like role-playing games for the first time games that, that weren't just quarter munchers, but they were games where you could sink days, weeks, months into, you know? And so that was really the appeal of the Commodore and, and computer games for sure. And I love that about your channel as well, the fact that you do cover the C64, because, I mean, a lot of, you know, YouTube channels that you see only cover, like, kind of the consoles, but, I mean, I remember, you know, you've done, like, your favorite Commodore 64 games, and there was the, uh, even the iPad versus C64 video as well that I did like, and you've covered the C64 yeah. Mini in recent years too, so it is great that you do cover the, the computer side of it too. Yeah, I found it on my YouTube channel that actually I, I do have a, a certain level of success with videos that do cover computer games. It's funny because, especially with the Metal Jesus crew, you know, the, the friends of mine that that come on my channel that I think all of them would say that they're not computer gamers yet so many people remember playing computer games back when they're younger like it was their parents computer and they would have some educational games like uh, you know Oregon Trail or something like that and um, so I I would love to do more of that you know it's funny because I'm actually working on a computer video right now and it's funny because I was last night working on this video and suddenly the computers decided to stop working <laughs> <laughs> and they're so fragile, you know, they're so, so I, so I understand that the appeal of people who want to see videos of that because there's like, man, to try to get this to work, you know, in 2019 is kind of a pain in the butt sometimes. So, uh, but I'm, I'm more than happy to take that challenge on. And, and computers were like really big here in the UK. I remember at school, you know, it was all like Acorn machines and Commodore and uh, Spectrums and Amstrads and stuff, you know, more so than, than consoles really in the eighties. Yeah. yeah. I, it, it's hard to say here in the U S I think it was, I mean, again, to me, maybe because I was a little bit outside of it, but you know, all my friends, in junior high had Commodore 64s or the rich kids had Amigas, you know what I mean? Or maybe some, some, you know, somebody had an Atari ST and Ooh, what's that? You know, that sounds so exotic. You know, it's an Atari computer. Um, but, uh, I don't know. It, it, it'd be interesting to know what the mix is because it felt to me like it was leaning more towards computers. But then when I started collecting for consoles, uh, I started realizing like, wow, actually it seems like more people definitely had, consoles i mean i had consoles like i i remember having an original nintendo you know the entertainment center uh entertainment system uh and then i also had the super nes but they just didn't get the love of my computer you know back in the day so have you always lived in seattle and kind of what was the game scene like uh, with so many companies around so i have so I, i'm born and raised in what they call the the you know puget sound area um and that's a, that's a really tough one for me to know because I actually lived in really small towns. I'm talking towns that had 3,000 people in them sometimes. And so Nintendo of America is in the Seattle area, but they were, I think in the 80s, they were probably the only one, right? Because there wasn't any Microsoft yet, really. Uh, you know, certainly no Sony. Now, what I would say, though, to, that has completely changed today. Today, we have almost everyone here in the, the Seattle area. So today we have 300 video game companies at least, and we have, I mean, everyone from Nintendo, obviously Microsoft isn't, you know, here. Sony has developers here. Apple just bought an entire city block 
and they're jumping into gaming here. Um, plus EA is here. They've been EA's been here for EA has a branch here that's been here for a long time because they own Big Fish and a bunch of those mobile games and stuff like that. Uh, Amazon is obviously here in Seattle, and Amazon is big into games as well. So, so to answer your question, in the eighties. I don't. I don't think there was a huge gaming scene here per se. I was probably definitely leaning more towards maybe the UK. You guys obviously had a huge scene on computers, yeah. Um, and in Japan, but today, it, it we. I tell people we have 11, 11 retro gaming stores in the Seattle area. No way. And, and people don't believe it. And it's like, you know, and by the way, that's just retro gaming stores. It doesn't count all the game stops. It doesn't count all the ponds, you know, the, 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 the pawn uh, stores. Uh, I think what you guys would call charity shops. It's immense here. Um, so you entered uh, Sierra on a really strange route, which was kind of through accounting. How, how did that work then? Yeah. So well, I mentioned, you know, Commodore 64 and I loved programming basic on it. And uh, so, you know, when I when I graduated high school, I thought, oh, I'm just going to become a, a you know programmer. That sounds that sounds awesome. And so I went to a, a local technical school called uh, Renton Votech and to learn programming. And that was an you know eight hour day of schooling to learn how to, to program. But in 1989-1990 uh, if you wanted to get a job programming the the number one thing that you would get hired for was accounting and so so you could learn to program and that's great but you're going to get a job in accounting and, and and the reason for that is is because this is before windows and, and excel had really taken off right so it's a little bit before that time so a lot of big corporations would hire programmers to program AS400s, these big server mainframes, or maybe you'd go to a bank and program the stuff that they need or whatever. Every company that was of a certain size needed accounting people. And so I reluctantly went there to learn programming, but also every single day I had an hour or two of accounting. And uh, it turns out actually I was pretty good at it. I, I, I captured, you know, I was able to understand it fairly quickly. And I, I wouldn't say I'm great with numbers, but uh, you know, I took to it well. And so, you know, after going for a couple of years and learning accounting, so what happened was is that, but I never really intended to get that job. Actually, at the time I was doing it, I was actually working in a bar. I was actually <laughs> helping mix drinks and stuff like that. But I opened up the newspaper one day and there was a job posted with by Sierra and, and they had their logo on there and they're looking for accounting people. I was like, whoa. That's crazy. Well, I could do that. I mean, at the time, I, I, I tell people I would have, if that would have been a janitor, you know, a janitor job, I would have took it. If, if cleaning floors, I would have took it. Now, at the time, so so the story is, is that what happened was I was living with another bartender who had kind of stupid amounts of money, and he bought a color scanner and color printer, which at that time was very expensive. Most people did not have that. And so what I did was I pulled out one of my King's Quest boxes, probably scanned the Sierra logo, and then using I think Corel Draw or Corel Paint or something like that, uh, printed up my resume with the Sierra logo huge in the background that was kind of faded. It was almost like it was printed on their their letterhead, and I also printed the letter that I was mailing to them with my resume in there, and I had the official Sierra logo on it. 
And I sent it off to them and literally just like, it was a day or less than a day later, they called me. They're like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> who like, cause they, I, I think they actually thought that maybe I was pulling their leg or I already worked there. So anyway, so they, they're like, well, Hey, you got to come in and interview. And so I went there and so this is, so what had happened was Sierra had moved their corporate headquarters from Oakhurst, California up to the Seattle area. It's technically Bellevue slash Factoria. Um, it's, it's a, you know, it's like 20 minutes or so from my, from where I live today. And, uh, you know, the reason why they did that is because Ken Williams was having a hard time hiring people to move to such a small little California town. And so they were growing so much, they decided to move their corporate headquarters up to our area. Anyways, to make a long story short, I go there to get an interview and I, it's, I'm like the only person there. Like it's like three or four accounting people. So what they had done is they'd only moved the accounting department. So or accounting people, so far, mm. everyone else was still down in California. So I go to this, you know, this massive building and it's almost completely empty. And there's basically just a guy named Jeff Bianchi who's running around installing Ethernet cables. They didn't even have like computer tables set up. It was literally just office space that was mostly empty, except for the accounting department. And so uh, it was really weird. I was like, okay. So, anyways, I got that job. And then slowly over the next year, they started filling that building up with, you know, Al Lowe's team and uh, educational people. There was a company called Brightstar that they they brought in and slowly the entire corporate machine filled up. But uh, I was definitely on the, the ground floor when I moved up here. Well, no, after that, you kind of moved into customer support, didn't you, from accounting? And what kind of calls were you dealing with? And was there any kind of odd calls that you kind of remember from that era? Yeah. So, you know, what happened was that I remember my manager in accounting, she's like, you know, I would come to work. Again, picture accounting people, right? You know, they're usually fairly conservative and, you know, buttoned up people. And I would come in with rock T-shirts and, you know, a tan and shorts. And, you know, she just knew. She knew it was like, hey, you're not going to stay here forever. And she actually encouraged me. She's like, listen, you know, it's a growing company. Why don't you why don't you see where else you might fit and, you know, go from there. And from the accounting department into the kitchen where you get your food and your, and your drinks and stuff, I would always pass through the, the, the technical support customer service department. And I immediately knew these are these are my people like, you know, the people with the funky colored hair and they've got a bunch of Star Wars figures on their desks and, you know, they're playing music and stuff. I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is this is my next step. And so what I ended up doing was because I was technical, I, I skipped right to to a lead position, basically kind of like a they had, you know, all these tiers or whatever. So I didn't have to kind of come in at the ground level. And, and uh, so I immediately kind of went in there. And, and basically what I did is that because I really love Dynamics and their games, I focused on them. They called it the simulation games, but that included everything from football, American football, uh, to baseball, and then we, uh, all the dynamic stuff. So Aces of, over Europe, Red Baron, uh you know, anything that that would have some, you know, like papyrus games or racing games and stuff like that. And they were also the most challenging to get working, too, because they usually required a lot of conventional memory. Uh, they were very tricky to get working. And I was very good at being on the phone with people uh, trying to make boot discs, you know, something back that you had to do back in the day. Um, I, I will say, though, that while I ended up in customer service, the cool thing about Sierra at the time is that they still tapped into everyone 
it was still a small enough company that even though you were on the phones answering questions, uh, they would tap into us to write articles for Interaction Magazine. Um, the, we were right next to the marketing department, so the marketing department would come over here because marketing people typically aren't gamers, and so they'd come over to to my desk and be like, "Hey, what do you think about this box? You know, what do you think about this art? Does this is this something that you would would catch your eye if it was?" on the shelf of a comp USA and stuff like that. And so a lot of that, I got to meet the musicians that were writing the music for, uh, you know, games and stuff like that. It was, it was really cool. I was wondering, um, did you play any Sierra games in your spare time? Because, you know, they say like, if you work in McDonald's, then you get sick of McDonald's. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, were you, were you playing when you got home? Um, yes. <laughs> it's funny though, because, uh, um, I had a bit of a reputation at Sierra for being the guy who, at 5.05 at night, I would be halfway out the the parking lot and driving home. Like, I didn't really like – I was very, uh, very reluctant to stay behind and play games because I, I had a computer at home. And so – I, so to answer your question is that a lot of people at Sierra were encouraged to stay after work and play games. And I just, I don't know, part, part of me is like, no, nah, I can just go home and crack a beer and, and play my games. And so, uh, yes, I mean, absolutely. I Well, I've always had a kind of computer, but I remember that Sierra at the time realized that a lot of their employees didn't have computers at home. And so they did this basic thing where they would loan you the money to buy a computer and then you could pay it off with your paycheck. And so that's exactly what I did. I bought a Micron, I think Pentium 100 at the time, you know, top of the line, probably cost me $3,000 or something like that and uh, had it at home. And I've always been, I I, I definitely played a lot of Sierra games, but I also played a lot of LucasArts, pretty much everything. You know, I've, I've always been someone who, you know, would go home and I'd play Everything, everything that came out at the time. I remember playing Mech Warrior Two from Activision and all that stuff. It was awesome. What were your favorite Sierra titles then? Yeah, so you know, I get asked this question, and and everyone wants me to say the King's Quest and the Space Quest and all that sort of stuff. And I do like those games, except for I get stuck in them. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm not I'm not smart enough to figure out the puzzles, or well, I I will say that Sierra had some really nasty puzzles. You know what I mean? Like I never got the whole thing where. In order to solve this one puzzle, you've got to go over here and you've got to pick up a chicken and maybe got to, you know, tape a, a bottle rocket to its back. And then, you've, you know, what I mean, it's like these crazy ass puzzles that I don't even know how people figured them out. Um, so to answer your question, my favorite developer by far was Dynamics. I loved everything that they did, everything from the incredible machine to like the simulation games like i loved aces over europe ace of the pacific red baron a10 tank killer i'd you know I, at the time it was a bunch of flight sims and so i was really big into that and dynamics made some of the most fun ones that you could play but i also loved their other stuff like they made stellar seven and they made the original mech warrior for activision um and they also made and and also too i really did like their adventure Games, so they made the Adventures of Willie Beamish, which I thought was a really cool, quirky adventure game. Uh, they made Rise of the Dragon, which was a Blade Runner esque, uh, you know, uh, adventure game. So I kind of dug those. So that was, I love those guys. They were awesome. 
I think you made a really interesting point there as well about the you know how difficult and like illogical some of the puzzles were in games of that era. I mean, I was chatting today with a, with a friend on Facebook, and we we're reminiscing about a game. Um, I think Core Design released it called Universe. That was a gorgeous adventure game, but I remember being so frustrated and never making it off like the first level of it because the puzzles were so illogical until I got like a magazine walkthrough. But it was the only way to solve them. But I guess maybe yeah. just you know it maybe it was a way to elongate the games to players, or they just hadn't figured out design. I'm not sure. I know for Sierra, a lot of these games were made in a bubble. In other words, you'd have a designer like Al Lowe or Roberta Williams. And for the most part, it seemed like they made them themselves and they didn't really bring in outside beta testers or play testers like you would today. You know, today games are so expensive that most developers at a certain point, they bring in the public, whether it's a public beta or, you know, private beta or, or they bring in friends, family and, you know, uh, media to test out stuff to see, where do people get stuck? You know, is this working? That's and I just, I think back then that just didn't happen. Um, I will say though that I think probably some of my favorite adventure games were actually Lucas Arts. Yeah. I there was something about Full Throttle and some of those games that just seemed a little bit more. I was able to understand them or get through them easier. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, talking about that as well, you you did move into games testing. Um, at Sierra mm-hmm. too. I mean, was that one of the things that you were kind of looking at these, you know, how players would see the game? Yeah, yeah, that's th- a good point is that I, I did a lot of testing as well. And so, um, you know, and, and that comes from being technical as well. It, testing testing back then was really interesting because it helped to be technical because not everyone was. Um, and But it, you also have to think like the customer and I'm I'm very good at that. And actually even beyond Sierra, when I moved into other software companies, I, I've always been the guy who will will think like a customer. And so they definitely use me for that to, uh, and again, sp- specifically with Dynamics games, they would be like, I remember very vividly being brought a copy, I think it was Earth Siege 2 or something like that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a gold, it wasn't the gold master, but it was like, it was definitely beta. It was like, okay, we're going to ship this game in two weeks. I'm like, okay. And they just want me to run through it, make sure that there's nothing obvious, right? And I would be the one who would hit the escape key at the wrong time and, and crash the game. Uh, but I remember the developer telling me that it needed an outrageous amount of mu- uh, memory on PCs. And I, I, I've told this story before, and I always forget the exact amount. But you know, I, he he brings me the 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 disc, and he's like, yeah, you know, just make sure that you have. 32 megs of RAM or something like that. And I was like, uh, <laughs> and at the time I remember thinking only Bill Gates has enough money to have that much RAM. <laughs> it wasn't cheap back then, was it, RAM? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I remember, I think I had four or eight megs and that was considered what most people would have. Right. And I remember just telling him like, dude, nobody's going to be able to run this. And, and it sucks. You have to be very careful when you do that, because essentially when you tell somebody that they, they have to go, Oh, because, do they now extend the ship date by two weeks or a month to try to optimize the game and the the art assets to try to fit into a, a machine that you know small, right? With that much, that little of RAM. So it's it's a very you end up being the guy who gives people bad news. So I think a lot of people who uh, who want to go into testing think it oh it'd be fun to play games all day. Well, actually, what you're doing is you're telling somebody that hey, what you did doesn't work or is broken you know what i mean or isn't going to sell i've had to do that many times during my career and it's never fun but it's it's a trust thing and so 
that was one of those moments where he looked at me and was like, oh, man, you know, well, this isn't going to sell. You know, it was, it was really interesting. With Sierra, uh, I remember them doing kind of FMV titles. And when they started to move on to 3D, that was where it started to go a bit wrong. And that was the case with many companies, actually, like sensible software and stuff like that. Um, th- did you kind of wince a bit at those early 3D titles? Well, you know, so back then, Ken Williams was very, Ken Williams was, was always very forward looking. And actually, I listened to your podcast about Sierra, and it was really interesting that guy who's writing that book because uh, he nails it on the head is that, you know, Ken, Ken's a technology guy. And, but more than that, he also understands he, he was very clear that games were going to be more than just games. And uh, he, We'd get these emails, and the marketing department especially talked about this, is that you know the way that Sierra thought about the price of games was based on movies. So you know at the time, you might pay $10 for, of course, it's probably not quite that much, but let's just say it was $10 to go to a two-hour movie. Well, that is a $5 an hour entertainment value, right? Yeah. You're willing to spend $5 for you know every hour of entertainment when you go to the movies. And so... Sierra thought about the same way about their video games and the prices and and the amount of entertainment you would get out of that. And because of that thinking naturally led to to making games more like movies. Uh, you know, obviously the technology was starting to move that direction with CDs and then later on DVDs, but also the processing power to do videos that had actually a decent frame rate and decent resolution. And uh and also to uh, Mist, the game Mist, when that came out in the U.S., that was a mega seller, and it really changed how Sierra thought about their bread and butter. Because here's this game that just you know is it came on CD. You had to have a CD-ROM to play it. It had this this CD audio. I mean, it was it, it's it wasn't full motion video, but it was. I have to imagine it was, it, you know, Sierra was like, oh man, like this is the future. You know, everyone's going to have a CD ROM very soon. So let's go ahead and move into full motion video. And uh, to, to answer your question, did it make you wince? It's funny you say that because at the time it seemed like the future and then it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and for the longest time after Sierra, I thought that full motion videos were games were just a, a joke. And there was only a handful of really good ones. Like I, I think we can argue that uh, wing commander three wing commander four are great examples of full motion video games, right? Because the cutscenes are full motion video, but there's still a game there. Um, we've always said that Gabriel Knight two is one of the better examples of a full motion video game uh, because it didn't sacrifice too much of the, gameplay element even though it was kind of annoying to have to wait for gabriel to, to stand still and walk over to a table and stuff like that but um yeah you said but for the longest time full motion video games were just universally terrible you know or unnecessary i should say and uh, so anyways after leaving sierra i was like oh man you know that that was a that was a dark period of gaming but it's funny you've probably seen this too is that now gamers of a certain age are kind of coming around and sort of uh being nostalgic towards them which i find really interesting so <laughs> yeah i mean we've even it, seen it had a bit of a, a resurgence in recent years and obviously now you can do it like you know beautiful 4k film sequences and everything yeah, yeah. it's true and and you know <laughs> i mean the whole problem with full motion video is just that 
you know, it, it's like a movie. It's like, it's like, you know, it's hard to make movies that are good because you have to get the right lighting, the right actor, the right script and all this stuff. It's so much easier, in my opinion, to just sculpt a great uh, animated cutscene, right? Where you can make it exactly the way you want instead of having to rely on all the, the full motion video stuff. And so I think that's why it's tough. It's hard, it's tough to make good movies. It's tough to make good full motion video games, but there are some examples of it, you know, for sure. Yeah, you're completely right because um, kind of if you have a one bad actor in an FMV yeah. film, that can ruin the whole experience, even with amazing sets and a, a whole amazing cast. You know, oh, but back in the day, they'd use like people from the office to be actors in the games and yeah, stuff, wouldn't yeah. they? A lot of the time in FMV oh. sequences. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm living proof of that, right? It's like <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they'll put me in a game. I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, they did that an awful lot. Um, you know, and it's funny too because Phantasmagoria in your your previous podcast, they're talking about how that was the best-selling Sierra game, and that's probably true. But it was such a tough shoot. Uh, a friend of mine who now works at Valve was involved in that, and it was just a nightmare to make uh, Phantasmagoria. So much so that basically they just wrapped it up. And the reason I, I don't know if you've ever played the ending of, of Phantasmagoria, but it just ends. It, she just walks away. Because they just they were done. They just had to get that thing out. It was they'd spent way too much time, way too much money. They let's just get the sucker out, and that's why. Oh man, the ending is just bad. It's just so bad. Well, talking about your YouTube channel, I mean, I remember one of the may have even been the first video that you did was the um, Atari Twenty Six Hundred game uh, from Activision Hero. I mean, was that one of your your fondest titles when you were younger, that game. Yeah, I really loved Hero. And Hero is, you know, at the time, I didn't realize it was anything special. I, well, I guess it's from a collecting standpoint, right? It just was a really cool game on the Atari 2600. You know, people forget that the Atari the Atari 2600 was originally made to be a clone. Uh, it, was, it was made to kind of play tennis games. Yeah. You know, it was meant to, it was never meant to do a bunch of sprites on the screen. It was never meant to do levels or, you know, all this sort of stuff that they ended up doing with it. Um, and so there weren't a lot of platforming games on the Atari because it was just so hard to do. You have Pitfall, Pitfall 2, and, you know, a handful of others. But Hero, to me, at the time, was just so awesome. And I, I still think it's a really good game today, although I look at it through the eyes of some people who try to play it new, and, and they're frustrated with the physics that, that, that go into that game. But for me, man, it's like it's like my Mario. You know, it's like my Super Mario Brothers. I... When I when I plug it in Atari and I hold that joystick and I play Hero, yeah, I'm I'm back as a kid. It's awesome. Well, what I really like about your channel is you kind of discuss the wider aspects of collecting. A lot of people will have a YouTube video which will be my collection and stuff, but they won't talk about stuff like insuring games or even your your damp in the basement stuff that you had recently. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Are you planning any more of these kind of wider collecting videos? Yeah, I you know. <laughs> I've always looked at collecting as as a very broad thing. I mean, it's, you know, of course, see, I collect more than just games. I, I'm also a music collector as well. And uh, as, as much as I'm into games, I'm actually probably as much, if not more so, into music. And I, I've always been into both my entire life. And so, I, you know, it, it's so interesting because I think because games is newer, I think people are surprised by some of the stuff. But if you were to say, oh, you know, you're going to ensure your record collection or your guitar collection or you know, whatever sort of collection, it's just a natural. But for games, people are like, oh, you know, I thought these were for kids. And, you know, games, it's it just, it's all new, you know, for some people. And so uh, for me and my YouTube channel, I just like covering stuff that I think, 
you know, is should be talked about. So for instance, today I released a video that's all about misprints, like uh, cover art that is misprinted. So recently Darksiders in the US on the Switch, basically THQ forgot to put the red spine on there. They basically sent it to off to the printing presses and it arrived in the US and it has a black spine with 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 like the art kind of leaning over onto the spine. It looks really weird. And uh, I was like, huh, you know, <laughs> let's do a video about about collecting these kind of misprinted uh, screw ups sometimes. Because, again, and in the video, I, I talk about how over in the music world, this has been happening happening for 50 years. Mm. You have, you have Kiss albums and Def Leppard albums and Beatles albums that have misprints and they sell for $10,000 sometimes, you know. That's why I do that sort of stuff. Uh, although to say I've never wanted to come across as an, an expert or know-it-all in gaming either. Um, one of the things I – one of the pieces of feedback I kind of get sometimes is that, oh, man, he doesn't he doesn't know everything about Nintendo or, you know, he doesn't know everything about Sega. And I want to be very clear. I, I never meant to – it's too hard. Again, it, getting back to music, nobody knows everything about music yeah. or movies or art, you know. And so that's why I have people on my YouTube channel that I can bring in, like the John Hancocks, who have complete collections of everything, you know, to be experts and kind of bounce that sort of stuff off of. It's it's fun. It, it adds variety. That's one thing on YouTube. People will always pick you up if you make even the tiniest little mistake, won't they, as well? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's true. I know. It's like I'd love to be able to re-upload my videos sometimes because, you know, it's funny, too, because I'll – I'll think something and say the opposite or, you know what I mean? And I don't even pick it up. Like I did a video on, I think it was the Wii U or the Wii or something like that. But I kept saying GameCube in the video. I'm like, oh, and I didn't, I didn't realize it, you know, until it's uploaded. I'm like, what? oh man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, speaking about your collection, I mean, did your, which kind of way around did it work? I mean, did you start your YouTube channel, then your collection kind of came out of that? Or did you have a big collection and think? Let's make videos about this stuff that I've got. Well, you know, I've always been collecting, like I said, a little bit of, of video games and a little bit of music, well, a lot of music. Um, I had a huge big box PC game up until, I don't know, probably 2005 or 2004. It's one of those things where I just threw it all away, <laughs> like, a, like a moron. You know what I mean? Oh, this is worthless. Let me just toss this in the garbage and... Uh, you know, and then of course, years later, I'm like, oh wow, I can't find a copy of that anywhere. That sucks. I had that. You know, you know, it's funny because back on the Commodore 64, I had thousands of games, but they were all pirated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, it's amazing. You know, I got all these. You know, but um, it's it's not because I didn't want to buy them. As I was a kid, right? Yeah. And you find some guy who's got two disc drives and you know has these these discs. So. That's why I love collecting the physical thing now because I never felt like when I was a kid I was actually owning all those games, you know what I mean? And it's cool to have that stuff in my collection to have it physical. And so, But that said, I've always had like a really large CD collection of music. Um, I've always had some vinyl records and things like that. And uh, I've always had a decent amount of video games for sure. Well, I read in one interview that you'd you'd met a lady who was uh, burning her old video games. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, you know, so oh, I'm sure you've heard of Craigslist over here. It's yeah. uh, you know, it's a, a, a public bulletin board system that anyone can post anything on there. And I, I used to be on that a lot, just looking for stuff or keywords and 
I forget what the search term I came up with, but when you when you're on sites like that long enough, you start to notice that hey, this person might have more than than just what they're advertising, you know, because as we've mentioned, some people think video games are worthless, right? They're for kids, uh, you know, uh, for whatever reason, they just think that, that they, you know, like you'll go to a garage sale and they'll have all these tools and clothes and all this stuff out, out on the lawn. And, the, and then you ask them if they have video games. They're like, oh, yeah, we got some, you know, some in the, the basement if you want. You know, they don't they don't even think they're worth anything. They think they're toys. Mm-hmm. Anyways, and so, yeah, I, I saw a search, and uh, I, want, I forget what it was. I wish I could remember. Let's put it this way. It was really far away from my house. It was like, I think I had to drive an hour and a half, but I knew that this person probably would have uh, more than they said. So anyways, I drive all this way. I, I, I do bring a little bit of extra cash with me just in case. I get to their house, and it's kind of like a trailer park, which is, you know, a mobile home. Um and it's kind of dirty inside, and you know, I, I was kind of wondering if I was going to like lose a kidney and you know wake up a week later and <laughs> have my head shaved. But um, but they uh, they were burning the boxes and the manuals and basically anything that was paper from all of these NES cartridges. And uh, you know, I was just like, oh my god! Uh, and so I bought as many as I possibly could off of her just to. And and they were like in great condition. It was like just amazing. So just one of those weird things. And then I got in the car and I called Kelsey, who owns Pink Gorilla Games. It's a local retro gaming store. I'm like, Kelsey, (laughs) (laughs) I told this lady to bring all the rest of her stuff that I couldn't buy. Don't burn it. But I told her to bring it into your store. So just be aware if this lady comes in with this massive amount of games, you know, that that's who I, you know. So, yeah, I tried to I tried to. Save as much as I could. I'm just imagining all these copies of like you know stadium events burning away on like this fire, and you, you just watching. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's funny you mention that because you know the reason why stadium events and and uh, the, the NWC cards and stuff like that get found here is because there's so many ex Nintendo employees here, right? And again, sometimes they don't they think they're worthless. They don't you know they're for them it was a it was a job. It was just you know a product that they're selling or whatever. And so yeah, those things are here. It's pretty crazy. Well, one thing I really like is your pickup videos as well. So uh, your big box PC one with Kenzie was great because you could kind of look through all the old titles and uh, the giant Pikachu with Kelsey as well. Um, well yeah. I was wondering, would you be doing any more pickup videos? Well, that those <laughs> that that big box PC pickup was very unique. That was a crazy thing because what had happened has is that I, I'd gone over off Craigslist a guy who worked at Microsoft or still works there. And he was selling a bunch of big box PC stuff. His garage was full of it. He let me pick through it. Kind of made a friend in, in him. And I told him, like, hey, man, if, if you you know ever run into any more of the stuff or you want to sell any duplicates, let me know. And about a week later, he messages me. He's like, hey, have you seen this ad on Craigslist? He's like, it's been up for about a week. And so I look on there and I'm like, you know, 600 big box PC games. And again, I'm, I'm looking, you know, so many times that when people say big box PC, they either mean the DVD size, which are the ones from the 2000s, or it's just the jewel cases or whatever. They don't really know, right? And I look at that ad, I'm like, holy crap, this is like, this looks amazing, right? And the thing is, it was over in Bremerton, which is a ferry ride. So you have to you have to be committed to do this. Anyway, so I messaged the guy, I'm like, hey, I'm really interested. And he's like, okay, but you got to get over here because if you don't, 
it's been up for a week or so, and I'm just going to take it all to the you know charity shop, the the Goodwill. So he's, he, he was tired of getting jerked around by people who were kind of interested. Because if you think about it, most people don't have the space to take on that. And he wanted everything gone. So I was like, oh, okay. So it's funny, I, I, I messaged Kinsey. And I'm like, Kinsey, like it's a Tuesday or whatever. I'm like, hey, you got to go with me. And she's like, I'm working. I'm like, call in sick. <laughs> I need some help. <laughs> and she was actually really cool. So she called in sick. Her boss still doesn't know. And uh, yeah, we, we hopped on a boat. We went over there. And it's funny because we thought we could put it all into our SUV and no way. Like it was so much stuff and it was all awesome too. And he, the guy was really interesting because he, you know, I, I, when I do that, I'm shooting video. I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I, I talked to him first. I'm like, just so you know, I have a YouTube channel. This is a pretty cool thing. This is kind of what I do. I'd like to be able to shoot video if possible. And he was like, no, I was like, Oh, I'm like, uh, and, and I get it. You know, he wants to be private. He's like, no, I'm, I'm part, I'm, I forget what he said. He's basically in military intelligence. I was like, oh, because Bremerton is a big military town. He's like, basically, you can only shoot around the street and in my walkway, but you can't show the front of my house or the number. Hmm. I was like, okay, Th that's totally cool, dude. We'll we'll do whatever we can. But that's why in that video, we drive over to the park, and that's when I actually show the majority of what was in the in the back of it. Uh, and then he promised me to come back the next day. That's when I got Paul, and we actually got a bigger SUV to get all the rest of it. And it was uh, it was a it was an awesome, crazy find. You just don't have those very often. What's amazing about him too is that I didn't say this in his video, but um, that was only one of his collections. So he also has a massive PlayStation One, NES, Super NES. I mean, all that stuff. It just he just wanted to get rid of the PC stuff. Well, you know, talking about amazing pickups, um, obviously the video that, you know, a lot of people will have seen of yours as a, you know, a, a golden kind of pickup, something that you don't see very often, was the American version of the N64DD. Now, just so you know, if, if anyone hasn't seen it, kind of tell us a bit about that and um, how you came across it. Yeah, so that was, that was it was really interesting find. So, um, and, and, you know, to all your listeners, I just have to be, kind of like my video, I have to be a little bit careful about this because the person who... Um, you know, who I got that from doesn't want to be identified and they don't want to be identified for the reasons why I say in the videos, because use your imagination, but there's a lot of people who work at a lot of different gaming companies. And even though Seattle's a big city, they all know each other. And so they just don't want to be, they just don't, they don't need the limelight. But anyway, so that was another thing where again, Craigslist, someone was, someone was posting on Craigslist, a bunch of import games and it was over, on the east side of, of Puget Sound. So it's a, a little bit of a drive, about 30 minutes. But I drove over there and it's like, this person shows me their game room and it's like all this really crazy import stuff. I think I think at that time I actually took Reggie with me. And, uh, you know, meeting this person for the first time, they've got a bunch of really unusual stuff. And we bought a ton of it that night. Um, and then they, they they pointed to this milk crate that was sitting underneath their desk. They'd just been kind of kicking with their feet. And they're like, yeah, I've got this thing. And um, didn't know what it was. It, it had that, that, you know, that kind of like test unit stuff on there. And um, didn't, you know... You know, maybe one day we'll figure out what this thing was. And so that's exactly what happened was that 
it took about two years for that person to kind of trust me. Basically, I was like, I really, you know, I don't know what this thing is either, but I'd love to do a video on it. Um, let's, you know, let's, let's see what happens. And they were like, nah, I don't, I don't really care. You know, they're, they're going on with their life. They're, you know, and then about two years later, they're finally like, yeah, okay, let's just, let's just, let's just see what this thing is. And so what happened was though, with that video is crazy is that I, posted on assemblergames.com, I think is what it was. It, it basically a, a very famous site for people who really dig deep into the hardware and software of retro games and stuff like that. Anyways, and so created an account on there, posted some photos of it, and was like, hey, does anybody know what this thing is? And it immediately, people were like, oh, that is the U.S., the unreleased U.S. prototype of the N64 DD disk drive. And uh, and what was really interesting about it is that it it, it boots up in in English. Mm-hmm. So it, the entire operating system has been converted over to English. Um, anyways, and so that video kind of went viral on its own. It was really kind of crazy because it got picked up by Ars Technica and some other ones, and it just sort of ran with it. It actually helped me out because it, it helped me identify what it was, um, and then it, it it turned me on to people who were able to kind of test a little bit with it. So there's a guy, uh, uh, Tony, a YouTube channel called Hard for Games, and he's a bit of a prototype collector. And so he flew over to Seattle and kind of helped me figure out exactly what's going on with it. Now, here's the really weird thing about it, is that it's it's near production ready, meaning it has all the copyright built into it, and it's region locked. So it's a U.S. 64 DD, but it'll only play US 64 DD games, of which there are none. <laughs> so, in other words, Japanese ones won't play on it by default. So, the only thing that will really run on it is that demo disc that that was inside the the drive when it left Nintendo. It's strange because we saw a lot of hype in England about the DD, and mm-hmm. we'd see it in magazines and stuff. But was it ever successful in Japan? I don't get the sense it was. I, I think, I mean, because only, what, 10 titles came out for it, and four of those are kind of like, you know, paint and uh, kind of educational titles. You know, and it, at that time, when that came out, I forget exactly when, but, you know, it was so, I think floppy disk was over. Floppy disk was kind of over on the PC. You know what I mean? People had moved on to CDs at that point. So it's the technology of floppy disks, like, it, it was it was too little too late in my opinion. Well, have you ever done like a teardown of the system, or would you like you know someone like you know Ben Heck for example, kind of dig into it and have a have a look? Yeah, you know um, that's a good question. I I think somebody reached out to me who wanted to do that. I I probably could do an update video on that. I mean that's the thing is that people ask me it's like so so my main goal with that really was is to be like hey are there any more of these blue discs out there because everyone knows that. Mother 3 was was in development. There's all these games that could have potentially come out for the, the U.S. version of the 64DD. You know, are there any prototype in-development games out there, these blue discs? And four of them came forward, I think, and all of them were either damaged or blank. So, so anyways, to answer your question about tearing it down, potentially, but really I thought the games was going to be the big thing for that. I was like, man, you know, it would be so cool if... If there's a playable version of you know Mother Three that I can pop in there and you know at least bring up the title screen, that would have been so cool. But 
they are those blue discs, those developer discs are incredibly rare. I mean, if they're sitting around somewhere, they're in a drawer or an attic, and people have long forgotten about them. I mean, you know, talking of things like you know, like the N sixty four DD that you got. I mean, is there any other kind of dream hardware or prototype thing that you've always kind of keeping an eye out for? Or you'd love to get? Not really. I, I don't really honestly spend that much time thinking about it. Uh, a friend of mine who who works at Microsoft bought a Super Nintendo development kit uh, unit. Basically, it's the it, it looks like a, a, a PC, but it's branded Nintendo and Super Nintendo, and it has all these has ports on the front for the the controllers and stuff. And so, I've been bugging him to do a video on that. It, it, it's it's already out there. People have seen it if they look for it. But he actually owns it, and it works. Um, the one thing he, in order to get that to work, though, it it only works with Windows 3.1. <laughs> so you have to have a PC that's it, it, you can't fake it because it's doing a serial port. So yeah, so. He's been kind of dragging his feet going, I don't want to build a Windows 3.1 machine and be like, I'll build one. I'll do it. <laughs> It'd be really cool. Let's, let's you know, I'm trying to think. I think Casey has a couple. Casey is a big collector in our area. I think he's got a couple prototype machines, but it's not something that I really think that much about um, or follow, you know, to be honest. Uh, you know, obviously the, the Super Nintendo CD, you know, the PlayStation Super Nintendo was a really cool find. Um, I don't know if you've ever actually seen that in person, but that that travels around to a bunch of the expos here in the U.S. and that's that's pretty cool. And it was cool that Ben Hack was able to get that thing working. Yeah, Ravi had heard a rumor there might be a few more out there as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's a, that's the thing about this is that usually there are. Mm. The problem is that as time goes on, they just get thrown away. Like that again, that guy over in Bremerton. I mean, I I know that's PC games, but you know, it just gets thrown away. People. Either don't know what it is, or they're cleaning the house, or moving, someone dies, you know, that sort of stuff. Well, the one thing I love about your channel, like you said, you can't be an expert on everything. So you bring other people in, and now you've formed like a Metal Jesus crew. Um, are you planning on doing more kind of collaborative videos with more people in them? Because I, I love the one where you went out gaming and you had that, uh, you'd hired that kind of cottage. Out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, that was really. I know, man. That was a that was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful place to stay. Um, yeah, I'm always interested in having people over. I that's my favorite videos to do. It, it's just it's great to have a conversation. You know, it's great to. I just I love it. It's it's easier for me because I don't have to say every single word. <laughs> I don't have to. You know, I I don't know. I just love the conversation. So, anyways, uh, John Riggs is going to be on a video here pretty soon. He's he's all about PlayStation VR, and so he did a. Uh, a PlayStation VR hidden gems video that's actually uploaded to YouTube now and just waiting to go. Um, a, uh, a friend of mine down in Portland, Oregon is coming up next weekend. His name's Andrew and we're going to do a bunch of music stuff. We're probably going to, I think for that one, we're actually going to go and we've also got a bunch of record stores in Seattle. And so we're going to hit up a bunch of those and do some vinyl, um, kind of hunting stuff like that. So it, it's always ongoing. <laughs> But also, too, to your point, you know, I'm always interested in other people as well. Like, I've actually had quite a few people beyond just the the, the core, you know, people they've had on. The problem is, is that people, it, it looks easy to do what we do. And it, it is for us because we're used to talking to an invisible audience. But often when you, you know, people be like, hey, I want to come on your channel and stuff like that. And they find that it's really weird to sit there and talk to this pretend audience on camera. And so that's something you kind of have to 
get used to doing, you know? So every once in a while, I want to bring somebody on who's like doing stuff like that. And, and I'm certainly interested in doing it, especially if they bring something new and interesting to, uh, into videos or a conversation, but, uh, it's not as easy as it looks. I mean, you also do get out and, you know, speak to, to real life audiences as well. I mean, have you got any kind of conventions or events that you're going to be going to over the summer? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, expos are, are awesome. They're really fun. And uh, so I'm going to be going to, let me see here. So the next one I'm going to be going to is E3. Uh, that'll be in June. Um, that's in LA. And then after that, I'm going to be going to Game On Expo, which is a really awesome expo down in Phoenix, Arizona. And that's in August. September, I will be going to PAX West, which is right here in Seattle. So that's really easy for me. I think I'm going to be doing a panel with somebody. <laughs> I don't know. Um and then after that, it's going to be the the big Portland Retro Gaming Expo in October. That one is – you couldn't keep me away from that one. That one's the 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 awesome one. Well, if we ever make it out to one of those, it would be awesome to uh, you know, meet up. You know, like Ravi and I are big fans of your channel. And uh, it's been great getting your stories this week as well about Sierra and, and your YouTube channel and all these amazing discoveries. And uh, thank you for coming on. Keep up the good work. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I am I'm, uh, a new fan of your channel. I loved – you know, the Firebird – video that you did it was so fascinating because here in the u.s we had elite and we had a few of these games but i had no idea about the connection between firebird and rainbird and and all of that stuff that was a great episode so i'm i'm a i'm a, a new subscriber to your, your your podcast i really appreciate that yeah that, that's such a weird one as well that it was british telecom and the post office and and that's one great thing about retro gaming though isn't it just discovering all these weird stories that you didn't know existed and oh yeah and if you start digging into pc games i mean it, it's an endless supply of stuff as you guys know it's like you know sierra was the big one or one of the big ones, but there's all these little ones that created little masterpieces that I just love hearing about. So it's cool. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. I appreciate it.